Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies, all related to a single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera, try to make sense of how and why the movie was made, and then discuss each one in way too much detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my co-host, Bo Ransdell, this season we're examining the films of Turd Ferguson where we're exploring the oeuvre of one Mr. Burt Reynolds and highlighting six movies from the career of one of Hollywood's biggest stars. This season, we have a good cross-section of comedy, musicals, animation, and drama where Mr. Burt Reynolds shines in front of the camera, shows off his abilities in the director's chair, and certainly takes a turn or two at improvisation when it comes to writing dialogue. Kicking off this season is one of the most iconic movies of the 1970s, featuring one of the most iconic cars of the 1970s, and Mr. Burt Reynolds in what is perhaps his most iconic role of the 1970s, and perhaps of his entire career, that of The Bandit. So join us as we take a look back at this high-speed, 18-wheeled, car-jumping, profanity-filled beer-smuggling cinematic extravaganza as Mr. Bo Ransdell introduces us to Mr. Burt Reynolds' masterpiece of cinema, Episode 1, Smokey and the Bandit. The year was 1977. The zombies hadn't topped the charts in eight years. Now, this was the time of disco. The Billboard Top Singles boasted titles like Dancing Queen, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, and I'm Your Boogeyman. In fact, the whole of popular culture was turning away from the serious and somber. After the cresting and recession of the hippie and yippie movements of the 60s, the horrors of Vietnam had just ended and a president retired in disgrace, followed by a famous goofball and then the guy who said that the whole country was experiencing a great malaise. Well, the whole decade was kind of a bummer. Sure, great films were being made, like The Godfather and The Deer Hunter and Five Easy Pieces, but what was popular at the box office more closely reflected the general attitude of the day. We've all been through some shit, so let's take a breath and just have a good time. To put this in some context, the inflation rates were going up, the stock market was going down, and there genuinely was a sense that the country was adrift. What was setting the box office on fire were movies that promised some escape, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or Oh God. Star Wars, a legitimate cultural phenomenon, of course, topped the ticket sales that year, but a scrappy movie with no script and budgetary concerns came in second, all thanks to a national love of cars, Burt Reynolds, and the trucker life. In the 1970s, truckers were seen in popular culture as outlaws, renegades behind the wheel, using their own cool language filled with phrases like breaker breaker and come back. These guys and gals wore flannel and baseball caps, chatted away the miles on their CBs, and lived by their own rules. Songs like Six Days on the Road in the early 60s and, very especially, Convoy, which was a giant hit in 1976, only helped build the mystique of the trucker as the rogue of the interstates, living by his or her own rules. 
enter one of our heroes, Hal Needham. Born in Memphis, Tennessee, Needham lived a manly life if ever there was one. He was a paratrooper in the Korean War, a treetopper, which is basically a lumberjack, and was even a billboard model for cigarettes. He found his way into Hollywood as a stuntman, initially for television, and then movies like How the West Was Won and McClintock and Little Big Man, often doubling for another of our heroes, actor Burt Reynolds. In 1976, Needham was working on the film Gator, where he was serving as second unit director to Burt Reynolds as director. Shooting in Georgia, a friend delivered to Needham a couple of cases of Coors beer, which was unavailable east of the Mississippi. After noticing his illicit beers going missing, Needham set a trap and found that the housekeepers were stealing the Coors beers from his fridge while he was away. Noting that Coors had been specially delivered to Air Force One and that his own friend had to bootleg the beer to get it to him, Needham formed the basic idea for his film, Smokey and the Bandit. As initially conceived, Smokey and the Bandit would feature Jerry Reed, who had played the villain in the movie Gator, as the titular bandit, a trucker taking a load of Coors over the Mississippi line. The whole thing would cost about a million dollars, and it would serve as Needham's directorial debut. He wrote the script and delivered it to Burt Reynolds, who said it was the worst script he ever read, but he would still star in the movie. Reed's character was bumped to the bandit's buddy, Snowman, and Reynolds was officially attached, contention on the script being polished. Not that that would matter, as we'll see. At the time, Burt Reynolds was the biggest star in the world, Previous to Smokey and the Bandit, Reynolds starred in Deliverance, The Longest Yard, White Lightning, and its sequel Gator, and a dozen more with directors the likes of Woody Allen, Robert Aldrich, and Peter Bogdanovich. He had an easy charm and a signature laugh and directed himself in Gator leading up to the shooting of Smokey and the Bandit. Hey, the studio seemed to say, Needham may not be a director, but Reynolds is, and he can step in if things get out of hand. So, with its heroes in place, the movie needed a damsel in distress, which became a signature role for Sally Field. Known best for Gidget and the Flying Nun on television, Field had never broken out of the world of TV, save for a single feature appearance in the bodybuilding movie Stay Hungry, which also features an early Arnold Schwarzenegger appearance. Field initially didn't want the role, but her agent insisted, saying she needed a big feature on her resume to boost her to new opportunities in the industry, and Reynolds turned out to be an early supporter of Field, despite the fact that the studio wanted someone more attractive in their eyes. Finally, though, Field signed, and the rest of the cast was filled out, beginning with the villain of the movie, Buford T. Justice. The name came from Burt himself. Buford T. Justice, the real one, was a friend of Reynolds' father and a police chief in Riviera Beach, Florida. Justice's usage of the phrase, some bitch, also came from Reynolds, whose father had used the term, and Reynolds co-opted the word for Justice's rural vernacular. Originally, Richard Boone, a venerable character actor who'd appeared alongside the Duke himself, John Wayne, in the movies The Shootist and Big Jake, was originally cast. But that idea was thrown away in favor of comedy staple Jackie Gleason. After his defining role as Ralph Cramden on The Honeymooners, 
Gleason scored with serious roles in The Hustler and The Amazing Requiem for a Heavyweight in the 1960s, but the 70s saw little work outside of television. When he accepted the role of Buford T. Justice in Smokey and the Bandit, he was given free reign to improvise, up to and including the presence of his son Junior along for the ride in the movie, a plot point that was missing from the original script. In fact, not much of the original script was used. Both Gleason and Sally Field described the shoot as largely improvised, a fact you can kind of see when you're watching it through this lens. Everything about the production was seat of the pants. The original budget of a million dollars that Needham originally envisioned had ballooned to $5.3 million, with the inclusion of Burt Reynolds. Days before the film's principal photography, the studio, 20th Century Fox, cut the film's budget by a million dollars. Given this fact, and the fact that Reynolds himself got a million dollars for playing the bandit, the budget of the film was shaved by a quarter, leaving Needham and company scrambling to figure out what could stay and what could be done. The movie's flaws are bolstered by its nearly pornographic fascination with car chases and wrecks. While the original Bandit was written to drive an old Ford Mustang, when Needham saw the 1977 Pontiac Trans Am, he knew that was the perfect car for his outlaw character. Pontiac furnished the production with four Trans Ams and four Pontiac Le Mans sedans. Those were the police cars. None were working of their own power by the end of production. Most had been scrapped to use to make the other cars work just long enough to get the shots. With his cars and stars in place, Needham rounded out the cast with the Trading Places-style wagering team of Big Enos and Little Enos, as played by character actor Pat McCormick, whose claim to fame was bit parts on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, and Paul Williams as Little Enos. Paul Williams is best known as the songwriter behind the Muppet movie and a slew of film scores from the time period. He played the producer Swan in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, as well as doing the score for that film, and scored Bugsy Malone, a movie about child violence, the same year as he appeared in Smokey and the Bandit. Williams popped up on television all through the 70s and 80s, but it was his music that always defined him. Also, he played an ape named Virgil in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. That's all you need to know about Paul Williams. As mentioned before, Smokey and the Bandit was an amazing hit, second only to Star Wars and ticket sales. But kind of why? I mean, I can point to some cultural context clues, but why this slapdash, trucker-jacked movie? For that answer, I present to the show, Smokey and the Bandit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Bo Ranstell. With me, as ever, Chad Cooper. Hello, sir. Good to talk to you again, Bo. And we are here to talk about 1977's Smokey and the Bandit, a Burt Reynolds vehicle that... uh, No pun intended. (laughs) It was certainly intended, (laughs) and I feel dirty already. So, as I mentioned in the intro... This is, behind Star Wars, the most successful movie of 1977. The same year, I would add, that Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. Now, 
I would argue that <laughs> Close Encounters <laughs> is objectively a better movie than Smokey and the Bandit. I, I think you can make that argument. I think you might lose that argument depending upon who you're arguing with. Okay, well, let, let's just get right into it because let's right, talk about let, let's talk about who's watching this movie. A movie that begins like okay, so we see the Universal logo spin, and the first thing we hear is a diesel engine, a good old and the, and the first thing you read is Burt Reynolds' name, <laughs> right? As I mean, it, it shows up. It shows up before the title. I mean, that's what got asses in the seats to begin with. But just in case you forgot, Burt Reynolds is in this movie. Well, yeah. I mean, he's the biggest star in the world at this point. And, you know, again, we talked about in the intro, but without Burt Reynolds saying, uh, you know, yeah, I'll do it. uh, This movie never would have happened. Hal Needham would have made this movie with Jerry Reed for a million dollars. And it might have even been a better movie. I think if they had made this movie with Jerry Reed, no one would have ever been talking about this movie. Oh, absolutely not. Because no one says, you know what was great about the movie Gator? The villain. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Jerry Reed, I prefer Jerry Reed. Like, that is the weird dichotomy of my life, is that push come to shove, I would rather watch a Jerry Reed movie than a Burt Reynolds movie, I think. I can't say that. I've seen a lot of Jerry Reed movies, and he is a nice side dish, but he is not the main course that is Burt Reynolds. And let me just let me just say with like full uh, disclosure, um, the first album that I ever purchased was the soundtrack to Smokey and the Bandit. I owned this album. I listened to this album repeatedly. I've seen this movie a lot. I know this album. Um, probably as good as I know just about any other album. Like and I'm both Paul pr- Simon's I'm pr- Graceland, Smokey and the Bandit, like the classics. They might be Giants Flood. Sure. Uh, you know, th- there's a few other Steve Martin's comedy is not pretty. There are certain things that I know backward and forward. And one of them is this. And I'm both proud of and ashamed of that at the exact same time. I also like in this movie, like once you get that big, you know, diesel engine rev rev, you have Jerry Reed essentially singing a ballad, telling us the backstory of the bandit as we watch the bandit in the one and only time in this film driving an 18 wheeler you know, in his signature red shirt. And as a kid, I always thought, you know, the bandit was driving the Trans Am. But when you sort of listen to the narrative of this this ballad, you know, he's a truck driver, but he never drives a truck in this movie at all. He just, you know, chews gum and and, and speeds around in a fast car. Yeah, and shows off. That's right. We, right. But, but those are two distinctively different skills, driving an 18-wheeler and driving a Trans Am. But, you know, that, that's, that's splitting ears. Driving's driving, so... I I would argue driving is driving, but what he is doing in this movie isn't driving. It is like the Tokyo Drift of 1977, where he is doing crazy shit with this car. But I, I think, to your point, the idea that Burt Reynolds steps out of a cab into a Trans Am and becomes Steve McQueen, not to mix a metaphor, but... I don't know. I like I think the whole premise of this movie is kind of stupid. Well, let's get it let, so let's get into the premise. So so after we get this this introduct, introductory uh you know legendary ballad about how awesome he is as, as a truck driver, we meet, you know, Big Enos and Little Enos Burdett. 
And and once they've you know shown up at at whatever you know Truckosaurus rodeo you know rawhide that's going on you know they come rolling up and one of the things they make is that you know this is a bet that has been made multiple times and we're introduced to some tight pants wearing uh, individual who has been arrested by the police for uh, smuggling Coors beer across state lines. The question I have is why are they making this bet multiple times? I mean, it seems like a really stupid bet, even when they explain it to the bandit of, of you know, we're going to be having the celebration when we're going to have this this special beer there. Why would they do this over and over again? I think it's like when you want to kill your wife, and I'm not saying you do, but you hire multiple hitmen so that if one doesn't get the job done, the other one will. Now, the problem with this movie, as opposed to my hitman scenario is that you do it all at once if you're trying to kill your wife. Again, not saying you're trying to. But but in this case, it's like, well, that didn't work. So we're, now we're going to go to the next guy instead of getting... Because the real thing to do would be to get three or four drivers to make this run all at once. And if one or two get busted, who cares? Because you've got two other semis full of cores. Right. Well, what you're describing is the plot of the Cannonball Run. Well, a far superior film in my estimation. <laughs> right. So what you're, what you're saying is that rather than, than, than placing one chip on, on a particular number on the roulette table, they should have put many chips all on the table all at once and thus provided a much better movie. And, and, and I wholly agree with that. It would make a more logical movie, but then it, it removes the necessity of the bandit at that point. And, and to get <laughs> into the thrust of the plot, the idea isn't that the bandit, who is, of course, a trucker, he's not the one actually driving the truck. No. He is driving a, a, a Pontiac Trans Am that will serve as a distraction so the police will chase him instead yes. of the truck yes. full of cores. So when we first meet the bandit, one of the things that really struck me in this is that Big Enos and Little Enos Burdett, which, again, I don't know how many people in the world are named Enos, how many of them committed suicide for a variety of obvious reasons. But when we first meet the bandit, they're, they're looking for him. And his, I guess his manager or whatever, he comes up and says, like, who's looking for the bandit? He's like, because I'm the guy who's paying him $25 a day so that they can take a look at him. First off, that seems really cheap. Even by you know when you take into to you know inflation and and you know the value of a dollar, that still seems pretty cheap. But once we meet the bandit, the first line out of Burt Reynolds' mouth is his signature laugh. And again, I don't know if that's in the script. I don't know if that's in front. But you hear that <laughs> when he's looking at. Big Enos and Little Enos, you know, these two mustached individuals wearing matching clothes. And, and and I was just like, you know what? That sets the tone for the film. It's, you know, and he's, you know, making a joke about either their dick size or their height or, you know, whether they're a couple. I'm sure there's, whether it's misogynistic, homophobic, racist, take your pick of what's offensive to people in present day society. And I'm sure it's sprinkled about there in some fashion. Yeah. I mean, he's immediately like, Hey, you two look like a couple of homos. <laughs> right. And I can't fit. And here's the other thing. And if, I mean, I don't know if it's just for obvious, but why is little Enos Burdett so angry? I mean, he's really pissed off at everything. Well, I, I think I have at least part of the puzzle here. 
which is that <laughs> Big Enos Burdett bought uh, not only matching suits, but matching hats. And if you'll notice, Paul Williams' hat looks like it's trying to swallow his head. <laughs> it's way too big. It is, <laughs> right. It is like the, the costume designer <laughs> decided, you know what's funny? Little people in oversized clothes. So essentially, like, David Byrne from Stop Making Sense, only three and a half feet tall. You know, I didn't do I didn't do my research on this. I don't know when Randy Newman's short people came out, whether it was before or after this. But I'm, I'm for anyone who is considered, you know, short in stature. And I get that that song is meant to be, you know, ironic, you know, in its nature. But it didn't do anybody any favors if you were a short person. I got news for you. Short people, 1977, sir. See, it all all comes together. Yeah, Randy Newman, as ever, leading the way. (laughs) I like that, you know, when he comes up and he asks, he was like, I want you to go get 400 cases of beer. And that didn't seem like a lot of beer, you know, to me. I was like, you know, 400 cases. I was thinking about, you know, a transom of how, or not transom, how much an 18-wheeler would hold. It didn't seem like that much. Yeah, but... uh, the whole thing is half-baked. Like, the the event he shows up to to take the gig in the first place looks like a county fair. And I would argue probably 400 cases of cores would do them all right. Fair and enough. W- and where he shows up, you know, it's it's the same gig. Uh, but, like, at this moment, though, we're big and little Enos. Uh, do you think Enos the penis, you think that was what got him in, in grade school? Is that too I- easy? It's it's not even Enos the penis. It's it's that Enos is is derivative of penis anus. I mean, it's just it's it's going in every hole and in and out. I mean, the poor guy. I'm telling you, I'm I'm really surprised that he didn't just wrap a belt around his neck and hang from the bathroom door before he reached the age of thirteen. It's the only way he can do it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that goes without saying. <laughs> I also like that once the bandit, you know, takes the, the, the bet and says, okay, I'll go get your beer and I'll bring it back. And he was like, I'm going to need a car. I'm going to need a fast car. And again, I did my research on this and, and they say that they will pay him $80,000 to make this run. And if you adjust that for inflation, you look at what that's worth today. It's around. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt. This is Chad here. I just need to make a quick edit. When we originally had this conversation, I calculated that $80,000 was worth a number in present day currency that was wholly inaccurate. So I just want to let you know, $80,000 is worth around $325,000 and not the embarrassing number that I originally stated. Um, I apologize and, uh, math is hard. So let's get back to our conversation, um, about Smokey and the Bandit. And I, for me, that harkened back to why little Enos Burdett was so pissed off. I would be pissed off if that was my dad pissing away this much money on shitty beer and just an obnoxious asshole that's getting paid money to lay around in a hammock at this low rent donkey show in whatever County, Georgia for, for, for whatever reasons. Do you, do you think Little Enos, a.k.a. Paul Williams, mm-hmm. every time that Big Enos is like, well, come on, we're going to give him $4,000 for a brand new car, Little Enos. G- keep handing him that money. That the whole time he's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Like, as soon as this is all over with, as soon as I've got cover, 
I'm going to, I'm going to murder him. I don't think there's a jury in the country, especially during that time and day, when you look at kind of the, the, the financial status of, of most people in rural America that would say that you look, you know, my dad was paying this obnoxious asshole $80,000 to go get beer. And then on top of that, a Trans Am at that time for, for like that was decked out in this cost around $7,000. So, I mean, 10% of, of the purse that they were getting on top of that was being spent for this car that was just sort of arguably unnecessary. You know, I, and we'll get into that a little bit later as far as like, you know, how much value the bandit brings to this as opposed to just some guy going and picking up beer and bringing it back. But um, we'll, we'll kind of get into that. So once they've, once they've taken the bet, he has to get someone to drive a truck because clearly he's not going to. And that's where we're introduced to Jerry Reed. Yeah. A- A.K.A. Snowman. Right. Uh, and, Cletus, and it, Cletus Snow is his Christian name. <laughs> forgive me. Right. Far be it for me not to address the man properly. Uh, so it's it's Cletus Snow and his co-pilot, the Basset Hound Fred. Right. The bandit shows up, who's, by the way, speaking of Christian names, his name is Bo, and that's all right. No, no, no. I, I got no problems with that name. I like that when when... He shows up at the snowman's house, which is basically on the set of the Grapes of Wrath. There are just children coming out of the woodwork. So, so Cletus is is very virile, I'm assuming. But the first kid who sees who sees a uh, 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 bow, you know, if we want to call him that, he she sees him, and I'm assuming that this is his daughter, stepdaughter, you know, some sort of relation. She says, "Hi, the bandit," and and that's his name. So I was like. <laughs> I don't know if this was the actress or if this was like what was written in, you know, her version of the script, like go over and say hello to the bandit. And, and maybe she sort of assumed that the bandit was one word. She didn't know that you would just call him bandit. But, but to me, um, I, I really like to think that maybe she was just a little more proper and understood that, uh, you address a legend accordingly. He, he's Mr. The bandit to you. I, I guess so. I, I think that is to borrow a phrase, a prime example of the real feed up approach to direction of this film. Mm-hmm. We're not worried about throwing a take too much. No. You know, like if you start laughing, <laughs> then yeah, we'll cut there. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's just someone like, hey, the bandit, you forgot to put his name in my script. It's fine. The bandit's fine. Right. Film ain't cheap. Right. Uh, yeah. We're burning daylight here, honey. Right. How about you stop with the yap yap? Mr. Reynolds is coming through. So when he when he walks into Cletus's house, and again, this has all started early in the morning. The bed is made. You got to get going, okay? And he shows up at Cletus's house, and Cletus is asleep in the middle of the day. <laughs> well, he's asleep. I mean, in quotes, he is, he is well passed out <laughs> from the night before. Like, Maylene, his wife, or whatever her name is. Mm-hmm is not expecting him up anytime soon. No, my guess is she's probably expecting another child any moment. She just hides it very well. Right. Like the nights he passes out are the nights she doesn't end up pregnant. So, or, or, or in the emergency room, you think he's bouncing Maylene around? You think I, I feel like snowman. Oh, you know what? I was about to say, I feel like he, he's a calmer sort. And then I flashed ahead to four scenes. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he not- is a hundred percent beating her. Yes, 
<laughs> him, the kids, the dog. I mean, just in general, he yeah, is the dog not takes a- off at one point. It's like he he sees one chance at freedom <laughs> and takes it. Better yet, and we'll get to this in a moment. Basset hounds are not good swimmers, and this dog runs into a lake. Yeah, he's just like swim or die, Fred. One way or the other, this ends. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And here's another thing. I, look, this is a day trip. And what I don't also understand is is why does the snowman take his basset hound with him? And, and in rewatching this film, part of me feels like, and I'm giving the film way too much credit, that you had to have someone for the snowman to talk to. Kind of like in, in Tom Hanks' Castaway, that you had Wilson. You know, we had to, you can't just have him quietly talking to himself because then he looks schizophrenic. You know, just he looks like a crazy person. But having the dog, then he's able to kind of have some sort of one-way banter. And his corn pone, uh, uh, you know, charm rubs off as there's, you know, just a man and his dog on the open road um, running away from the horrible misery that is his day-to-day life. But why not have him use the CB? Because this this is a movie very much about trucker culture and making mythic figures of truckers so why isn't he just doing the jack burton from big trouble in little china where he gets on the cb and just lets the world know what's on its mind Uh, a dog named fred is funny you're not wrong but having jerry reed climbing up on his soapbox from the front of his cab saying like you know hey everybody i'm you know here on the flip-flop come back i think that would be just as much fun although a suicidal dog is funny now that I think about it. So let me ask you another question. So he shows up at uh, this this dilapidated house that was later used for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh-huh. And, and he, he opens up the back of his rig and he rolls out the signature Trans Am. When did he have time to go buy this car, let alone get personalized license plate that say ban one on them to make sure that it all kind of ties together? Well, I think that was probably something else that was reliquated to little Enos mm-hmm. of like, you know, hey there, little guy, I, uh, I'm i going to need a fast car. Here's the money I just stole from you. And now go get me the fastest car. Right. And so, then, so rich, and, rich people have connections and he just made a call and then it shows up. Right. And that, okay. And once again, big Enos is not getting his hands dirty with this. He's just the money man. Little Enos doing the legwork. You know, now that we've talked through this, if I had to have a nickname and it was Big Enos or Little Enos, I'm going to pick Big Enos. Yeah, uh, well, I think that the only way that Little Enos stood a shot of that is if it became an ironic name. So, so you're saying he had like a giant cock and you called him Little Enos because when he got naked, you were like, whoa, it's not little. It's great big. It's a Milton Burl size. <laughs> Lil Enos has a Lil Enos of his own. Right. And yes. I would like to see Lil Enos naked in his like little hat and then like a tinier little hat on his, his great big dick. But that I think that says more about me than it does about this movie. <laughs> Do you think it would be sort of a Russian nesting doll effect? That would presume that there's another, like, little Enos inside his smaller Enos. And at that point, you know, you're going down a rabbit hole that I don't want to visit. I mean, that's really the movie I want to be watching now that I say it. <laughs> all about little Enos and his adventures, the plot to kill his father. All that sounds way more interesting. 
I would watch another movie about Little Enos and Big Enos Burdett. I would absolutely watch that. In this day of going in and sort of strip mining, you know, weird tangentially related bullshit, I would without a doubt watch that like a, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of, of Little Enos and Big Enos Burdett of sort of what brought them into all of these different movies without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And I would like to see them make crazier bets. Like that's the movie I want to see is where they're trying to one-up each other with a bet that ultimately ends in murder. You know, basically I want to see them do Blood Simple. I could see that. Or like the game. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> where where they're challenging one another and, and really they end up getting pitted against one another of big Enos versus little Enos Burdett. And then they're, they're, then they're starting to get other people to perform more and more dramatically difficult stunts like like in in opposition to to father and child, I, that would be fantastic. I would I'm, I know what I'm doing tonight. I'm going to start mapping that out. That sounds like an amazing screenplay. What you call it, trading places, because that's essentially what the the role of the rich guys in that are. It's little Enos and big Enos only with Dan Aykroyd and and uh, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, but they're not pitted against one another. Not directly. Not not, not like not not intentionally. You it's know? a friendly wager as opposed sure. to the the blood match, the blood feud that we're talking about here. So once once we got, you know, we've got our Trans Am, we got our truck, we've got our, our wife beating Redneck and his dog, you know, we've got our, our moustached uh, matinee hero. They hit the road and, and, and going from Georgia to Texarkana, there is a montage where the song is Westbound and Down. And many people know Eastbound and Down for a, a multitude of reasons, but this is Westbound and Down. And we see this montage of them heading over to get the beer. And it's in this moment where you get to see, you know, what Burt Reynolds is going to be doing in the Trans Am, where there's a cop who, if memory serves correctly, is taking a piss. And in this movie, cops are pissing a lot just out on the side of the road. I don't know if that's, you know, a common occurrence, but I'm going to assume that it is. But the cop is taking a piss and he sees, you know, the bandit whip through whatever small town America and chases after him. And after he chases through him, you know, the bandit kind of ducks off and hides um, off beside, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, what I would assume to be a credit union, you know, or, or some sort of nail salon. And, and, and in this moment, um, the cop drives by and the bandit gets away. And this is the first moment in this film where, for me, when Burt Reynolds turns and looks at the camera with this shit eating grin, I had a thought that. This reminds me of a Warner Brothers cartoon when Bugs Bunny would kind of look at the camera and go, you know, ain't I a stinker? You know, and just like, you know, it's like, like you know, fuck these guys, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to be causing all kinds of mayhem. And then he peels out, you know, and runs off on his own. And there are other moments in this movie that I'm just like, yeah, this feels like a Warner Brothers cartoon of, you know, kind of the wily smart fox, you know, out outsmarting the idiot hunter. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think to that point, I believe it's the second one, you may you may have to correct me here, actually begins with animated bandit running away from an animated Buford T. Justice around the twentieth century Fox logo. In part two? Yes. That's highly possible. I know in I know in part three, as noted by Death in in Bill and Ted's bogus journey that it's Smokey and the Bandit three Smokey is the bandit. And in that one, there is no Burt Reynolds and it's Jerry Reed. And, you know, but that, that's a conversation for another day. Once they arrive at the warehouse to pick up the beer, this is a scene in this movie that rewatching it was very, very troubling. So they show up in the early morning hours, right? 
And there's no one there because it's, you know, the, the, the crack of dawn. They've been driving all night. And at this point, they proceed to break into this warehouse to steal this beer. Burt Reynolds kicks down the door and just barges in to take this alcohol. And if I may be so bold, not only are they committing breaking and entering. Correct. I would argue criminal mischief. Without a doubt. Because the bandit takes over the forklift so they can load the truck up. But once more, is just dicking around. And <laughs> it's one thing if he truly is the Bugs Bunny that doesn't care about this. But he kind of seems to. You know, or is the money just not the point for him? Is it all just the thrill of uh, the chase? You know, it's the it's the showing off. Well, but he says earlier, he was like, why would we go when Snowman asked him, why would we go do this? He was like, you know, for the fill, for the th- like for the thrill, for the fame and, and for the money. I think of the three things he mentioned, like, but mostly yeah. for the money. This guy's laying around in a in a hammock for twenty five dollars a day. Once they get the beer loaded, which, you know, is just kind of a quick, you know, kind of weird wipe of like, OK, so magically the beer's in there. Is that he's like, well, shouldn't we leave it? Snowman asked him, shouldn't we leave a note to tell them we've stolen their beer? He's like, yeah, yeah, leave a note and tell them that uh, to send the bill to Big Enos or Burdett. Which, like, do you really think the people in this small one horse town that has, I don't know, whatever tiny storage unit full of beer have any idea who Big Enos Burdett is? No, you're immediately calling the police. Right. They're going to find out who Big Enos, Enos Burdett is. Well, like, Big the- Enos Burdett doesn't know this yet, but there is a sickle hanging over him. And Lilianus is not going to do a thing to stop it. Just well, forget about that right now. But the thing that saves him is that when when the snowman, you know, using his, his second grade education, is like, send Bill to Big Enos. And then there's this joke of E-N-O-E-N-I. You know, P-E-N-I, like, and he goes, oh, shit, I got to go. And he just throws it on the ground. They are stealing, I mean, like, like, like tens yes. of thousands of dollars of alcohol. So not only, you know, in, in the, the plot of the film is that we're, we're transporting alcohol across state lines. In this case, you're committing grand theft. Yeah, you've got breaking and entering, criminal mischief, grand theft, larceny, and that's Fa- before we get to the traffic violations. And that doesn't include fashion crimes. <laughs> It's, you know, the 70s are an odd time. And it, I'm just thankful that he wasn't doing the Canadian tuxedo thing where it's the denim shirt and the blue jeans. Right. Because that was a roll of the dice. That red shirt is a blessing to us all. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in future episodes because that red shirt makes a, an appearance uh, numerous times as well. So so after after we picked up the beer and we're on the road, it's time for us to introduce you know, a damsel in distress. And as they're hustling down the road, you know, trying to make good time, they stop to pick up Sally Field, who is wearing a wedding dress with her car broken down on the side of the road. The bandit does a uh, Tokyo drift right up to her. And she just piles into the car and they take all, it's a complete quick transaction of, I got to get out of here. Where are you going? I'm coming with you. Boom, we're gone. And you know what? From a from a, a, a storytelling standpoint, this is really a great moment. You know, you introduce this wild card. You know, we're sort of on this path. It's going to be arguably a race against time. Get the beer back, make your money, and now we're going to throw in this this you know unexpected twist. So she gets into the car, and as they're talking, one of the first things she says to to the bandit is, "I'm a professional." 
And he immediately thinks she's a whore. Because he's like, well, you shouldn't be wearing white. Which says so much about him. And then within the conversation, within the next two or three sentences, he he tells her that she has fat calves. So Uh not not only are you a whore, you got fat legs, sweetheart. Chad, we call that negging. Uh, What he's doing there is lowering her self-esteem at clearly a time of vulnerability so that she almost can't refuse him. See, I think that he refers to that as pillow talk or arguably foreplay. Hey, uh, you got big calves, but uh, I like the ass. (laughs) There's a a lot of talk of her ass in this movie. There's a lot of ass talk in this. And you know what's crazy is that, you know, for Sally Field, she had made The Flying Nun and Gidget. Looking at sort of, you know, the choices that actresses make to, you know, either broaden their horizon or broaden their audience. In this, especially, you know, in contemporary uh, uh, you know, perspectives of relationships between men and women, whether it's through, you know, Me Too or, you know, Time's Up or whatever else. And this, the misogyny is just dripping off this film like honey off Winnie the Pooh. It's it's just everywhere. And it's not even inexcusable. It's just like, well, it was a different time. And that was at a time, unlike today, where there was a hard line in the sand between television actors and movie actors absolutely so so once we have our damsel in distress added to the car um and we're off on on the road it's time for us to to introduce the villain and this is where buford t justice shows up pulling up behind the car that had been since abandoned by sally field there are three you know youths narrative wells i would argue right proceeding to, to to strip the car And he pulls up in his car behind them and he gets out. And then when he closes his Zippo lighter, the three of them hear that because they are incapable of hearing an automobile, let alone a police car, roll up behind them, turn off the engine. It's only the snap of the Zippo that suddenly, you know, puts some starch in their shorts and gets them to like stand up at attention like, oh, shit, this is going to be bad. I think it's because they're not so worried about the car pulling up. It's that clearly they have some knowledge of Buford T. Justice, uh, as we'll see as they're like, Buford T. Justice? And it's got to be that one of them has, has has taken a turn in county with him. Right. And it's like, you hear that, his Zippo, the next thing you know, it's the rubber hose. Well, I, I like how, as he approaches the three kids, like the three bears, like the first kid, he kicks in the dick. But then the second kid, who's wearing a, <laughs> a, a Coors shirt, he just lets him get a slide. And then the third kid, he ends up kicking in his ass. And these are the ones that kind of say, like, look, there's a Trans Am. The license plate is Ban 1. And then there are many moments in this movie. In fact, you know, Jackie Gleason's portrayal of Buford T. Justice is, is arguably the best part of this film. And he tells these three 'er ne'er-do-wells that he says, I want you to stay here. He's like, I don't want you to go home. I don't want you to eat. And I don't want you to play with yourself. (laughs) Uh uh-huh is masturbating on the side of the road while you wait for another police officer to show is that an option i mean i guess it's always an option but i mean is that really an option for these characters that you know the three things i want you to check on your list of what not to do is eating uh going home and jacking off well they wouldn't make a law if someone hadn't done it you know he had to have seen it at least (laughs) once for it to come up I turned my back for two minutes. You got your business in your hand. 
Have you ever, you ever noticed like sometimes like when, when you're talking to people or, or maybe, you know, we all do this where the, the, the behaviors you find um, most offensive and undesirable in others are usually characteristics that are reflective of yourself. And I think if we really take a good, cold, hard look at Buford T. Jeffers when he says, I don't want you to go home, I don't want you to eat, and I don't want you to jack off, then I think these are probably the top three things on his mind that he's considering doing right here, right now. <laughs> or or maybe what how he would really like to be spending his evening probably <laughs> right. in order. Now, the one thing that's that's interesting about this is, you know, that the character of Junior, who's played by Mike Henry, uh, that this character, you know, being introduced so that that Buford T. Justice would have someone to verbally accost throughout the film. And it's similar to what we talked about, you know, with Fred the dog. But I like the fact that his dialogue is reflective of Mike Henry's previous work in the Tarzan movies in the 60s. Everything he says is like, yes, daddy, no, daddy. You're right, daddy. And I was like, as soon as I saw that he had played Tarzan, I was like, oh, this makes complete sense. You know, we just need an idiot that's able of spitting out two or three words and we're good to go. This character was never supposed to be in this movie. Not for this length of time. He wasn't supposed to be in the car at all. That was all Jackie Gleason. So they didn't have any dialogue for him. So go find somebody who can ad lib two word responses. You know what I mean? If like, like you mean, what do you mean? Like something like Tarzan? Yeah. Like Tarzan, like, like, you know, yes, go. We now, you know, like, you know, fire bad. Maybe that's oh. Frankenstein, but you know, they weren't making a whole lot of Frankenstein movies in the 1970s. Me, me hold that daddy. Right. That that's, that's pretty much it. I'll also add that that uh, you know as, as as we begin to sort of uh, a ping pong between um, the blossoming relationship between uh, the bandit and uh, Sally Field's character, who who will uh, henceforth be known as as Frog, uh, as she is uh, christened <laughs> by the bandit because she has legs, she's always hopping around all over the place. Is that it cuts back to 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 Jackie Gleason, you know, and he's talking about the fact that. She is a runaway bride, and that Junior is the the groom left at the altar. Yeah, and and there was a line in this that that has really haunted me, and I've talked about it with a lot of people. And it's it, it's a line where where Buford T. Justice says, "This happens every time one of those dancers starts poontanging around with one of those show folk fags." I don't even know how to square that circle. I don't understand how, you know, his logic of, so a woman who is straight, who's a dancer, starts poontanging, and I can't find that in in my dictionary anywhere. And how is it that that people who are in show business, and arguably homosexuals, would somehow turn her to to leave his idiot, you know, monosyllabic oaf of a son at the altar? Uh, well, it's part of the larger gay conspiracy, I would assume. I don't know how they in particular were going to woo her from the marriage. Because, again, as we've established, they are homosexual and have no romantic interest. I assume it's more of maybe a Tony Awards party? Maybe his son's gay. Maybe Junior's gay. That would explain a lot. It would, yeah. It, it would explain his discomfort in talking to his father in any way. You well, know, what does yeah. he have to say to him? So when when Buford T. Justice um, describes his what would have been daughter-in-law um, leaving his son at the altar, he says, and I quote, I can see her now running back up the aisle 
And then he says, no, she was dancing back up the aisle, which is almost poetic. You know, the thought of a runaway bride Mm -hmm. who's a dancer dancing up the aisle. She's escaping uh, what would have arguably been a horrible marriage. And at that point, you're like, wow, that was really insightful. She was dancing back up the aisle. She was happy. She was filled with joy. And then Beaver T. Justice tacks onto this. Her knockers were bouncing all over the joint and her ass was wiggling, too. Oh, wriggling. That's, I have that in my notes too. A wriggling. That's gross. Like a worm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so gross. Imagine your fat southern fried father-in-law describing your knockers bouncing all over the joint and your ass wiggling too. That's gross. That's really, really gross. And you and I are from the South. I mean, that's that's like, like even with those standards, like, you know what? There's a lot of things you can excuse. That's not one of them. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the the nice one two punch of uh, objectification here, because it's Buford T. Justice saying, I'm going to get her back. And whether she likes it or not, she's going to marry you. Right. While Frog is changing out of her wedding dress in the Trans Am so that the bandit can get an eyeful of her ass. Right. While he's holding up the CB, which she is unaware of, so that Snowman can hear the rant that she's on about this wedding. And then Snowman asks what she's wearing. And... (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm not the most sensitive guy in the world, but Jesus Christ, (laughs) like three scenes in a row where it's just like, what you wearing? What's your ass look like? Let me, let me get her back. (laughs) So, so after, after we've completely uh, degraded frog, we have a, 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 like our initial, (laughs) our initial chase scene, or excuse me, our, 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 our first real official, um, you know, chasing with, with the law. And I think it's also interesting, this movie, how they use, you know, kind of this Dixieland jazz to, to sort of show the, you know, the playful nature of, you know, of what's going on. And at this point, you know, Buford D Buford T justice has left Texas outside of his jurisdiction and he has moved into Arkansas. And at this point he begins, you know, to yell at another sheriff um, about being quote in hot pursuit. <laughs> no, yeah, that is the big takeaway. I remember as a kid, people doing their Buford T. Justices, and that was always key. Sure. It and, was and always, I'm in hot pursuit. I question whether or not Cartman um, got his authority, you know, from Buford T. Justice. If not, it's just a couple of degrees, you know, removed from that. But once we're seeing this hot pursuit, this is where the camera pans up from the knees of this other sheriff. And we follow him up. He's a very tall man, but he's also a very black man. And, oh and, and, and it's God. just like, it's like, okay, here we go. We're about to start dealing with racism. Let's, let, let's just see how uncomfortable this is going to get. <laughs> and, and it gets, it gets really, really bad. They, they pull up short of blackface. That's the, the next step in this. Jackie Gleason looking at Junior and giving him one of these, can you believe they let one of them, what a world, Junior, die? Well, and you're just, well, the, what? You know, later on, when he when it's revealed that the sheriff he's been talking to is uh, a black man, he refers to him as boy, which in his defense, he refers to everybody as boy. But in this case, there's a little more bite to it. 
you know? And then when he's, when he looks at the, sh- the black sheriff and he says, you sounded Tala on the radio. Like you can hear the dog whistle. You know what I mean? From, like from the other side of what other backwater County this is. And then to tack on, he says, what in the hell is this world coming to? You know, of just like, like, you know, that they would have a black man as a sheriff. But one thing I, right. I, I think we're getting ahead of it is not only just kind of the, 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 the deliberate racism for comedic effect is that in this movie, this is the moment where we have kind of one of the, the signature stunts um, that's performed by the bandit in his Trans Am. Yeah, and these are really... Uh, like I'm not a uh, a person who's really crazy about car movies and and car stunts and stuff, but this is really what Hal Needham does, right? And so if you're into that, the best parts of this movie, arguably, are the stunts, and it, it's a real Dukes of Hazard going over a wooden fin or a wooden bridge over uh, some water, and a car, you know, dumping into the uh, the cop chase him dumping into the drink slapping their hat on the hood and whatnot as the bandit gets away. But it's like all the car stunts, it's all practical, of course, because CGI wasn't really a thing. And and it all looks pretty good. And, you know, given especially the fact that that during production, they had so few cars to work with. It's amazing they ever finished this movie at all. Yeah, you got to make them count. I mean, you you absolutely have to. And again, I remember as a, as a kid, or even whenever you saw this movie being promoted, this was the the jump that they showed. It was the jump over the bridge. And you know, once they'd made it, you know, frogs all jazzed up. She's like, "I want to jump something else. I want to jump another bridge. I want to jump a house." You know, the bandit not to 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 miss an open door. He's like, well, "Why don't you jump me?" It's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. You know, she's a professional. She's a whore. And I just feel so bad for Sally Field in this because she really is a great actress and has shown that a number of times. And she's fine in this movie because she's kind of sassy and she gives it back to him. But boy, oh, boy, every line that comes out of a guy's mouth in this movie when it comes to her. You know, we have that there's a scene coming up here in a minute where Jerry Reed finally meets her. It's just like, nice ass. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> let's, let's dial it back just a little bit, snowman. At this point, what I think is also interesting is that Frog starts smoking cigarettes. So up until this point, she has been, you know, pure and clean and, and, you know, and pristine, but she's starting to smoke. So he's starting to rub off and they've known each other 30 minutes, 45 so she's smoking and she's coughing and hacking through it, you know, like an, like an eight-year-old child. And we pull into um, what they refer to as a choke and puke. And, you know, we haven't really touched on this of just the the trucker lingo that's being used. And it reminds me of like diner lingo where you cleverly come up with some, you know, overly convoluted way to name something. Whereas just saying the word would have been shorter and quicker and easier, but you're just trying to, you know, rather than a cop, you're kind of smoky or whatever else, but choke and puke. And, you know, like, you know, the dump and run and whatever else it, it was all kind of like, like the early stages of, of urban dictionary where every phrase had a dual meaning, you know, and, and, and you know, you could say something innocuous and it's like, Oh my God, there are children around. What are you, what are you talking about? Why would you say that? Once we we go to this choke and puke, you know, Band is like, hey, I'm going to drop off Frog and we're going to part ways because she talks too much and, you know, I got to go drop off this beer. So at this point, we're still mission critical. You know, Bandit is not being distracted at all by Frog. Yeah, and and she's also saying like, hey, I'm going to get a bus. I'm going to get out of here. You know, <laughs> bus. We're gonna sh- 
Look, Abby, it was the 70s, right. and it was still terrible then. You know, they shake hands, and and the bandit gives her ass one last long stare. Right. And to his credit, this is still when Burt Reynolds was less of a farce of himself. And there is kind of a nice moment where he says to her, like, hey, are, are you okay? They actually exchange a real look here. And she says, yeah, I'll be fine. And right. It, it's a nice moment. Agreed. This whole diner scene is about as good as this movie gets. From from begin until he, when he enters, until he leaves, there are moments in this diner scene that are probably some of those memorable moments in this film. Because this is the first time that, that Buford T. Justice and the bandit share screen time together with one another, not knowing who each other are. Well, and it's also that all the characters in this scene are actually talking to each other like people. Both the scene with the bandit and frog, and when uh, Buford T. Justice comes in, and it's, you know, <laughs> I hesitate to say Hitchcockian, but it's that thing where one character is fully aware of the situation, the other is not, and there's the tension, in this case, comedic tension. Sure, but but I think that one of the things that really differentiates this film from the works of Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> is that, you know, when Buford T. Justice enters the scene, he says, and I quote, Let me have a Diablo sandwich and a Dr. Pepper. I'm in a goddamn hurry. If I had heard Jimmy Stewart say that ever in my life, it would have been one of the greatest things ever. You know, if I could hear anyone from the, the, the standard stable of Hitchcock films uttering dialogue like that, oh my God, it, it would be an insane topsy-turvy world. I looked up what a Diablo sandwich was and it just, it basically sounded like what diarrhea is before you eat it. <laughs> it's, I, I assume chili is involved then. It, it just, you know, it's just, it's just gross on top of, of, of funky. And it's just one of those things like I, I had never heard of it before, but it's just a mixture of, of, of meat and pork and sauce and mayonnaise. And, you know, I'm sure if Sriracha had been around then it probably would have been in the mix as well. The bandit is like wiping mustard off his tie and talking about how hard his job is and what a supporter he is of the police. And it, again, it's a nice moment. It's actually legitimately pretty funny. You know, one thing that's missing, though, in this film, and I was I was really curious in rewatching it, is that Frog never confesses in any direct way that she knows Buford T. Justice and that the 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 idiot man child beside him is her fiance. Like there are multiple times in this film, it's like, do you know this guy? What's going on? Why is he chasing us? And she's just like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. And up until the very end of the film, is it even acknowledged by her character? But it's just left out. Like, I don't even know to your point of, you know, if Junior hadn't been in the car, that's it's both a driving force, but yet it's not fully acknowledged in any way at all. Well, nothing is because we're on a clock as well. You know, we've got 18 hours, is it, to to get to Texarkana and back? And there's never, not until the very end of the movie... Like at, at this section, like the, a perfect time to introduce the clock, the ticking clock again, would be this diner scene where the bandit looks at his watch, looks at the clock on the wall, something, some acknowledgement of like, oh yeah, we're on schedule, behind schedule, something. Some acknowledgement of that there's a real story taking place here. There's a touch of that when he's talking with Snowman and he says, you know, we're, you know, 28 minutes ahead of schedule. We're five minutes behind. You know, they they kind of dance around that. But that's really, at the, because especially when you get to the finale of it, it's like you have to be here by a certain time. But they don't really, you know, deal with it in, in any real way. 
So, so, yeah. but what- it, it's that it's the, it, it's, the, you know, frog, it's, it's her wedding because there's a moment where the bandit seems to kind of know, like put two and two together, but yeah, she never cops to it ever. I mean, but then again, deny, deny, deny. That's what I say. Sure. Why would you want to acknowledge that, you know, this, this fat ass racist and his, you know, dumb, dumb man child. I wouldn't do that. Right, like, hey, them days is behind me. That's right. That's why I left with my ass a wiggling. Oh, right, and my knockers <laughs> bouncing all bouncing over. all over the joint. So, so once we leave the diner, and uh, we have our second chase scene that culminates in Buford T. Justice's um, patrol car having the top completely ripped off by a semi trailer, and it again pretty cool. I, I I agree. It was watching it again. You know, pre CGI, it was like, look, we're going to have this man drive this car under that truck and it's going to rip the top off and it's going to explode and go everywhere. And watch it was like, oh my God, like that was amazing. I mean, that was back, you know, when, when, you know, when stunts were real and people died. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Twilight Zone hadn't happened yet, but no. sure. Uh, I also like it as they continue along, we we begin to meet other people that randomly have uh, CBs in their car. You know, like earlier on, you know, in the film, they uh, they get uh, like a tip from a character named the Silver Tongue Devil, which in watching, you know, when you have those moments, you're like, I know that guy. Look at him. His name was uh, Ben Tuthill. I looked him up and he was the dude in Poltergeist who played the uh, next door neighbor to Craig T. Nelson. You know, the one who's like, you know, bug ever suck on you, son. So he's in there and he has a great line where he says, it's like, you know, keep your wheels a spinning and the beavers grinning. And it's like. Ugh, be- like ugh, just what? Like that's your trucker lingo. Keep your wheels a spinning and the beavers grinning. And it's almost like, like, what do you mean by that? Like, explain that to me. Well, you know, I assume you have to be referring to women in general as beavers. Well, more specifically, for that to make any sense, I'm referring to their vagina. Right, and- but those don't smile, to the best of my knowledge. Well, I mean, I guess maybe you know, the, the creme de la creme of Asian performers might be able to pull something like that off, but potentially, you know, they're on the road. They see a lot of things, things that, you know, people like us may not be aware of, you know, this right. is pre-internet and who it's knows different cultures. Absolutely. It's Mondo Kane and it all, it, it, the world's a big place. I like, I like when they meet the grave robber, which again, in this case are, are two black men driving a hearse and and in it, the bandit whips by in his Trans Am, and he recognizes him. He's like, man, that was the bandit. I'm like, how did you recognize this guy? He's in. First off, he's not in his truck. He's in a Trans right. Am. He went by at 150 miles an hour. Is it the hat or the mustache or the red shirt, I'm guessing? They just in the distance, they heard. You think, <laughs> that's, that's what, I think that's the bandit. That, that would be the dead giveaway. So, so in our second run, that's when we have... Our, our second signature jump where cops are chasing them that culminates in the Trans Am uh, disrupting what I can only assume to be a Pop Warner football game. <laughs> I assume so. Uh, yeah, it, it's a... Re- Again, the law's being broken here because now Buford D. Justice is now a criminal as well. Correct. As soon as he crossed state lines in pursuit of the bandit, he is now uh, a fugitive as well. Even though he is bullying all the local police into his will. Like, he's a real Jim Jones kind of character. Yes. But but here's the thing. If you are in small town America and your chil- your children are playing football 
on whatever, you know, afternoon this is. And a Trans Am comes flying onto the field, you know, like, like ripping it, it up and crashing through the press box, through the press box to get out. Like it, it's a real, like, if it were a gunshot wound, it would be a clean through, but it it is a straight line down the middle of the field. Little girl cheerleaders running for their lives. It would be traumatic. It would be it would be one of the most terrifying things ever of like my child almost died um, today playing Pop Warner football when some, you know, moustached cowboy crashed through the field and destroyed the press box. And we now have in, in the chronology of their criminal activity and why the federal agency should be involved at this point, they have stolen a bunch of beer. Uh, they are clearly a menace because we've had multiple police cars at this point get thrown into rivers and turned upside down because of the bandits' antics. Correct. None of which, by the way, has really involved the snowman. He's just puttering along, you know, doing the speed limit, and he's just fine. Yeah, arguably, the ruse is working uh, because everyone's focused on the bandit. Now, One quick note about uh, the Gravediggers. I at least appreciate their healthy disrespect for the law. I think they're in it as much to help the bandit as they are to screw with police. There's definitely... I I can get behind that. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of, you know, community of, of, you know, for people that are involved with the trucker culture. You know what I mean? Of like, you know, sticking it to the man, the us versus them. And and, and I do think that that's something that is, is genuinely... Um, well reflected in the movie you know what i mean of like you know we're kind of this this underground group of of miscreants and we're all going to work together to help each other because we are all let's be honest up to a bunch of illegal shit that we don't need to go to jail for (laughs) right now it's time because we've got the law on our trail we should have the feds getting involved pretty soon because of what just happened at the pop warner game correct let's pull over and take a break so This scene just takes the movie and grinds it to a screeching halt because we have to have our two characters fall in love. And there have been a lot of movies that have done this. The one that always comes to my mind is uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where you're kind of telling one movie and then all of a sudden it's just like, what the hell is going on here? You know, like, like this is a car chase movie, but now we need to have our two characters fall in love. Because they've known each other for, you know, a couple of hours and literally by their own admission have nothing in common with one another. Right. Yeah. And it's a whole conversation about how much she loves dance and and how uh, she was on what Broadway for 12 minutes or something. She says, like, you would have loved me. And there's a look on the bandit's face that is. Uh, at once reassuring and also incredibly humiliatingly patronizing. Yes. And and that's all he's doing. He's just like, you know, you do what now? <laughs> he just does not give a shit. The first thing that comes out of his mouth after all this is over with is him bragging about like, you know, what do I do? I show off sometimes for almost 12 minutes because we got to turn everything into a fuck joke. So when he says that, I, you know, I show off. And, and again, I think if you ask anybody like, so people that show off, you know, what's another word for that? And it's just assholes. And so they're, they're walking around, you know, some sort of, you know, daily pond, you know, like, like, you know, greenery. And when she asks him, you know, do you ever take your hat off? 
And to your point, he's like, I only take my hat off for one thing, which just means like, you know, when I'm going to fuck somebody. And then she says, well, why don't you take your hat off now? And the question I have is, so do they fuck in the woods or did they? Is that what's implied there? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So just either like up against a tree or in the grass or, you know, wherever. And, and if that is the case, I just wanted to go back and chronicle her day. So she woke up in the morning. She got ready for her wedding day. She went to the church. She stood up her fiance. Her ass was wiggling down the aisle. She got in a Trans Am. She went mm-hmm. to a knockers bouncing. Her, Let's her, not forget her, her knockers were bouncing. Her she went to a bus stop. She jumped a bridge. She almost ran over a bunch of small boys and girls at a pop Warner football game. Then she pulled over to the side of the road and had sex with this guy that she's known for a couple of hours. So in that in that case, I think his assessment about her wearing white is probably more on the mark than I originally gave it credit for. And not only that. She's a crazy person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She is absolutely an insane individual. It doesn't mean she should be treated this way. But, yeah, she's crazy. Yeah, agreed. No no person should be, you know, objectified in this way and talking about her ass and whatever else. And you're fat and you're whatever and you're a frog and, you know, just degrading her. But if you really sort of take her, her insane rambling and everything we know about this character, she's a cuckoo. She's probably gonna kill him in his sleep. I would, it's just a better at the. I would watch that movie, and unfortunately, it doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen in the sequel. I don't know if you found this in your in your research, but I thought this was interesting. Um, <laughs> research is that in in the next scene, you know, after they've arguably had like you know sex in the woods, she's like laying on his lap, and she's all in love, you know, like a teenager. And so they're driving another, and then they hit this you know this other police roadblock. And then there is this this moment where Burt Reynolds says, uh, are you ready, Roy? And then Frog says, I was born ready. Did you see this or do you know this scene? Yes, yes, yes. And it was one of these moments I was like, what's that from? And so in looking it up, I was like, oh, so this is a reference to White Lightning and a sequence where uh, a sequence with Gator, which starred Burt Reynolds, which I was like, huh, that, that's interesting, you know, that at least they were kind of being, I don't know, somewhat meta about sort of tying it back, you know, to the fan base of like, you know, this knee slapping moment of like, Hey, that's that scene from that other movie where he wasn't this character, but he was another guy. You remember when he wasn't driving a Trans Am, but instead a fan boat. Right. And was also a bootlegger. Right. That's, that's like this only different, but she's a woman and she has fat calves. (laughs) Right. Don't forget that. Um, how God awful, uh, ugly Sally Field is in this movie and how terrible she should feel about herself so none of us have to feel bad about how how, how she is used by all the men in the film without a doubt uh, so we've dealt with we've dealt with racism in the south but there's a flavor of racism that then rears its head and it's kind of like uh, post-world war ii racism where we have an Asian man wearing a cowboy hat um, in his 18-wheeler and um, as Buford T. Drestis has pulled over to the side of the road with his door open, this uh, Asian cowboy screams bonsai and smashes the door off of his car. Yeah, I uh, don't see the problem. Uh, no, uh, I mean, of course, of course, uh, like uh, you can't expect this movie to take the high road ever. And so when, you know, poor Bill Saito, who's the actor's name, who I'm sure did not talk 
like uh, he had just st- stepped out of a World War II era zero. Um, I was, yeah, I was going to say like 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 a 1976 laundry detergent commercial, or uh, Peter Sellers, or no 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 Mickey Rooney, yeah, in Breakfast mm-hmm. about Tiffany's. Yeah. It is that level of it, again without the blackface, right? It's just you are putting the most stereotypically offensive things in this character's mouth. You just had the decency to hire an actor of similar <laughs> descent. That's it. That's all you managed to do, Smokey and the Bandit. Well done. Pat yourself on the back. I, I also like that, you know, Buford T. Justice, you know, when he tells his um, thumb of a son that, you know, there's no way that that he could come from his loins. And, you know, it's like, you know, Buford T. Justice is just represented so many behaviors that are completely uh, reprehensible. But I like the moment when he looks at his son and he says, you know, the first thing I'm going to do when I get home is punch your mama in the mouth. And I was like, you know, wow, you know, we haven't really dealt with physical violence against women in this film yet. They found a way to, to, to deftly, you know, interject it into the plot without it seeming forced. Yeah. It's a real kaleidoscope of the dark side of human nature. Uh, that's what I like about it. And I, but I have to say, I think that the, I'm going to punch your mama right in the mouth is the funniest line of the movie. It's the only thing that feels like a real honest to goodness joke. I would have to say if I had to pick the funniest line in the movie, and I don't know if this is alliteration or whatever, but when he tells the bandit that he's going to barbecue his ass in molasses, um, there's part of that, that, that really makes me laugh. All right. Yeah. But in both cases, uh, Jackie Gleason is the one holding it down in this movie while everyone else, again, real feet up, you know, without like, a doubt. He's the only one who's really having fun in it. Everybody else is just waiting for the director to call cut, which Hal Needham, of course, is the director, but you got to think Reynolds is the one who's like, Hey, that's a cut, right? <laughs> and that's just the end of it. Cause he had just directed Gator. So I'm sure, and if you see some of the clips from Stroker Ace, it sure feels that way there too. So not to get ahead of ourselves, but so Buford T. Justice gets a a, a heads up on the CB that the bandit is um, in a what I would call like a pink mobile whorehouse. Which, if you were in a whorehouse, you wouldn't want to paint it pink and on the side of it, you know, call it I don't know, Handy's BJ's or something like that. So it's just beavers around. <laughs> right. So so this this whole the, that foxy lady says, "Hey, you know, I'll take care of uh business for you." And then Buford T Justice is like, "I got him." And uh uh you know, he heads down and and the bandit isn't there and said it's some local, you know, police official and uh you know, he accost him as well. And again, at this point, he's just a private citizen. He has no authority over anything. He's just being an obnoxious fat asshole. He is essentially Charles Bronson. At this point, seeking revenge uh, across state lines for his his cuckolded son. Right. And then in in another, I don't want to call it a chasing, but a pretty clever moment when the bandit is driving down the road and the police are chasing them. He kind of hides in what they call, you know, the rocking chair where um, he hides behind one 18 wheeler while being surrounded by others. And in watching it, I was like, that's kind of a clever way that, you know, they were able to, to, to sort of mask him from the cops. But then, you know, Frog looks up at one of the drivers and says, wow, they can, they can really see everything from up there. And the bandit again was like, yeah, so that way they can check out all their beavers. 
what is it with the beavers in this movie? I, I'm just now realizing that all through the film, <laughs> that is a slang term for women. And how on earth <laughs> is this a PG-rated film? Maybe the, the MPAA didn't know, you know, what a beaver was. They were just thinking, like, you know, beavers are cute and adorable, and and then that's what they're referring to. So, you know, right? But PG, it is. Did no one ask where the beavers were in this movie, considering the amount of lip service they were getting? No pun intended. No, no, we we really didn't get that far. Let, if I may, sure. Let us divert to snowman for just a second Please. because we forget all about him for like a- after he tells frog she's got a nice ass mm-hmm. he disappears for a little bit yep but he he shows up at uh, a truck stop you know a diner a choke and puke and gas and sip or whatever it is and heads in for some food sees uh sugar bear is the name of his buddy who uh is a black gentleman and I think in stark contrast, the way that truckers are portrayed versus the police in this, the truckers are the good guys. So he and Sugar Bear have a perfectly natural conversation. And Jerry Reed does not seem to be surprised that a black man has reached any level of success. Well, the so, name of his uh, restaurant is simply Soul Food Cafe. So you don't walk into any restaurant called Soul Food Cafe and expect to be see, you know, a uh, 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 Caucasian proprietor. And if you do, you should promptly turn on your heels and walk the hell out of there because it's going to be awful. That's just a fact. Oh, you're a hundred percent right. But also the owner was black. Yes. But sugar bear was just there like getting coffee or something. Oh. He's just another truck driver. Fair enough. So we've got, we got a whole, uh, you know, cast of African-American actors all of a sudden who are being treated with respect but this movie yanks dignity away from us at a critical moment because Jerry Reed, for no good reason, really, he just kind of decides he's going to get in a fight. Yes. <laughs> and so he didn't decide. The director decided. Hal Needham was like, we need to have a, a you know, bare knuckle brawl. Where, you know, you are going to just kind of beat the shit out of guys and get drugged down a bar and crash into bottles. And we're going to throw you to some tables. And, you know, that's about it. Well, and you're right. And it, they they screw with Fred. Yes. And Jerry Reed can't take this, obviously. And then proceeds to pick a fight with the entire bar full of people who are not him and his dog. And is rightfully... Uh, taken hold of by the masses and they just beat the living hell out of him for a few minutes up to and including punching him out the door of the place. It was like a, it was a saloon bar fight. Yeah. I mean, he's when he finally staggers to his knees, you know, like one eye is swollen. He's got blood all over his face. He looks kind of hung over, which I'm sure he still is. And there's a real moment of like, I kind of wish this movie had been the gritty trucker movie that this scene, like, not the fight, obviously, that was very silly, but I would love to see the wrestler version of Smokey and the Bandit, where it's like, let's, let's take a peek behind the curtains, you're gonna see the real shit now. And that's, I, I don't know that that trucker movie exists. If that's, if, if it does, it's the hitcher. And at the end, you're like, oh, my God, like, what happened there? That that really got uncomfortable. 
It is the Hitcher. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Rutger Hauer sans truck. Although trucks do figure into it. But yeah, it it is a completely needless bar brawl. Again, if you're on the clock, if you and I, Chad, were told like, hey, if you can just drive this car back and forth to Texarkana, we, we are not stopping along the way to pick fights in bars. No. Or even if they. You're also not stopping to, to fuck at a state park. Now, well, maybe you are. I don't know. I, you know, it depends. <laughs> I, it depends on how far ahead of schedule we are. Right. Because I, I mean, and let's be honest here. We only need to be maybe 10 minutes ahead of schedule for this to go down properly. So, so here's the thing. So, so once we get to this ending, and and you know or, or, to, to the finale, and th- that's the thing is when you talk about the, t- the the time element of this, is that at the end of the movie, you know, Snowman after he miraculously recovers from his fisticuffs, that he gets pulled over by a cop, and the cop wants to see his manifest, and he's like, you know, you know, yo yo bandit, I need your help up here, you know, toot sweet, hubba hubba, you know, and so the bandit's <laughs> like, you know, like okay, and he comes back. And the whole ending, the whole final chase scene of this, Bandit pulls up and Frog looks at the cop and gives him the finger. And it's just like, the cop's just like, you son of a bitch. That's it. And he just takes off. That is the match that that lights the fuse for the ending of this, is that a Trans Am pulled up, squealed its wheels, and gave a cop the finger and took off, as opposed to him pulling over an 18-wheeler that could arguably be trafficking human beings, you know, like, like, you know, drums of cocaine. Do you know what I mean? Like, like just <laughs> who knows what's in there, but it's like, no, no, no. I'm going after the trans am and the pretty girl who just gave me the finger. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yes, you're absolutely right. That's an overreaction, but at this point, like, how do they not know that it's this trans am that almost killed children that was at the scene of a major theft. Like, I think, I, I, I think it's more of a, Hey, here's the finger, but oh my God, that's the bandit. There's a mult. That's right. We have a multiple felon in that car bandit or no, at this point, I would think, I, because like you said, we're coming up on the conclusion and we're getting not just cars, but like, we're finally getting a helicopter. Where the fuck is that? Right. been the rest of this movie. Fair, fair enough. But again, I still think that that's the match that lights the fuse to our big finale. So the bandit takes off and they're chasing them and the cops are getting behind him. And by my estimation, there may be what a mile or two, or does he say how far they are from, you know, whatever, uh, uh, you know, snow cone fountain drink, uh, campground that they're going to deliver this beer. And then as they're being chased by... It's a KOA. Yeah, it's... It's, it's where they got to deliver like, this. It's good Sam, you know, like like elderly uh, hovel of, of, of RVs and, and, and campers. The bandit just, as, as it's kind of building to its conclusion, he goes, Snowman, that's about it. There's a lot of cops giving up. And it, I was just like, you what? We're not going to make it. We're not going to get there. Just uh, let's wrap it up. We're all going to jail. And, it, and it's shocking. And then it's the snowman who's like, you know what? No, we're not. I can drive another mile, you know, to, to crash through the gates to deliver this beer. And then the bandit, like 30 seconds later, is like, I'll be damned. We're going to make it. There's no tension. Yeah. There's nothing at all. Yeah. It's just like, you know what? Whatever. And I thought, you know, this this really shows his level of commitment, which is on a scale of, you know, one to a hundred, it's been like a three. And he's like, I'm gonna just drop it down to a one. 
You know, just like like I didn't really care, and now I really, really, really don't care. I don't give a shit. Whatever. Right. I at first I just didn't care. Now I don't give a shit. It was a subtle difference, but significant. Do you, is is the good version of this movie ultimately Midnight Run, where the clock is so well defined, and there is that moment at the end of like we're not gonna make it, and it it really feels like there are stakes to it, and when it resolves itself it's really you know satisfying and thrilling and you know i've i'd never thought about that but you know what i think you're right i think that midnight run is a movie that is very similar in its construction and um is is head and shoulders a much better funnier smarter more action filled fulfilling movie than than this ever was i think that that's i think that's a, a brilliant insight and a really good parallel between the two and we're done. There you go. Uh, no, I, so, I, no, but all right. So we bust through this barricade and I don't uh, like, why did the cops stop? And why does the helicopter stop? Well, because I mean, a bunch of alcoholic rednecks start cheering and doing cartwheels because their shitty watered down beer has shown up for them to continue which, the party because it's what? 10 AM. Which at best is room temperature cores. That's what we're shooting for. It's probably about 93 degrees, but let's cross our fingers and hope for a cool 71. At yeah, best. it's <laughs> right. So we're going to drink this shitty beer. Yeah. And it's just uh, like a, a, a racetrack, a dirt track full of people of, of, of I assume peppers. Uh, given the time period, dancing around like a bunch of damn fools. And yeah, it, but it's, it literally is like that they're just enough ahead that they drop off the truck, dump the Trans Am, take Big Enos and Little Enos's Cadillac and pass the cars, the police cars on their way out. But this begs the question, where is the helicopter? How did they not see all of this happening? I just, and again, it's from a cop point of view of like, well, clearly we're not after a red convertible Cadillac with, you know, longhorn strapped to the front of it. Those can't be the people that we're after. So just let them go. And then also I question, how did Buford T. Justice even know to show up at the rodeo? I mean, I guess maybe he followed it on the radio, but he shows up there. And I got to tell you, can you imagine the drive home between him and his dickheaded son with no roof on their car, whatever? Like that had to just be uncomfortable to say the least. Yeah, I. <laughs> you got to think that one of them doesn't make it back. And I think it's probably Junior. Uh, just because Jackie Gleason seems to be wearing the pants in this outfit. But, you know, it, stupid gets angry too sometimes. Sure. And there might be a scenario in which Junior just pushes him out of the car. There is no door anymore. Sure. So can, it might I just be a Junior mad and then shove. So in in our finale, you know, Buford T. Justice, again, gets on the, the CB and the Bandit and Frog and Snowman are in this Cadillac, again, dicking around when they need to be getting away from the cops. And they're yammering back and forth. And, you know, the Bandit reveals himself 
to say, you know, turn around and you can see me. This is, you know, the guy you've been chasing uh, in all of his mustache glory. And this is the only moment, you know, when they kind of peel out and leave him, that that Frog looks at her jilted fiancé and she's like, no hard feelings, Junior. That's the only moment in the film where you're just like, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of forgot that the two of you were a couple. What? What did they ever talk about? Like, she's a crazy person, yes. But she also is the kind of, she's kind of city crazy. Right. She's not rural crazy where she has, you know, a tar paper shack and sits on a rocking chair all day staring at the neighbors. She is kind of I'm a dancer. I like to do things. Here's I'm going to talk about art and here's some poetry I wrote and that kind of crazy. You know what I think? You know what I think that they mostly talked about? Uh, when they how were gonna, big his dick was, and how and how they were gonna fuck in the woods again later that afternoon, and and I guess any any port in a storm is how she felt about the afternoon woods fucking. Right when she got cold feet at the wedding, she was like, "Well, you know, I had been planning on woods fucking today, and if it ain't Junior, it's gonna be somebody. Maybe her. Maybe his. Right. Maybe his dad." Let me get my or a beaver. Let, let me get my knockers bouncing and my ass wiggling. We'll see things. <laughs> so, so that's that's right. That's where our movie ends. They peel out. Uh, uh, Buford T. Justice, I guess, follows off of them in hot pursuit. And you know, Junior, I think, has the last line of the movie. He's like, you know, wait up, Daddy, or something like this. And it's just at the end, you're just like, thank God, this is over. Wait, it's Jackie Gleason peeling out and saying, "I'm never going to stop." And Junior running after him, Daddy, I got your hat. And yeah, and and that's it. Like the the movie didn't know how to end, so it just stopped. Yeah, right. they just were like roll credits. It's fine. Right. Uh, good night, everyone. And that's it. That's Smokey and the yeah. Bandit. That is the movie that made the most amount of money for the year it was released. If you remove Star Wars, yes. Again, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Released the very same year, beaten by Smokey and the Bandit. And I, there's part of me that can totally account for that. And I just don't like that I can. Well, again, keep in mind, this, this spawned two sequels, a couple of television movies, like a TV series that ran for a while. It, it inspired, you know, so many other things that were, you know, related to kind of, you know, as you touched on earlier, just, you know, whether it was Dukes of Hazard, whether it was, you know, BJ and the Bear, um, you know, across the board, you know, it had influence just as far as like being this pop culture phenomena that that was this unstoppable force that was, you know, misogyny and homophobia and racism and and mustaches and and tight pants and you know, Coors beer. Now that I say it out loud, that, that, you know, that, 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 you know, that doesn't sound that bad. It, it does. It does sound better <laughs> on paper. I think than in practice, right? because I'll tell you that, that homophobia and, uh, sexism and racism stuff tends to float to the top when you're watching the movie. It, 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 it really, really is, is, is uncomfortable when you're going through it. If just like, did he, what did he did, like? Did he just make poontang on a verb? That was like 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 that's like I don't I don't even know what's involved with that, but I know exactly what's involved with that, and that's just the magic yeah. that's Jackie Gleason and, and Smokey and the Bandit, and also in his private life, one assumes. Uh, no, but let me let me ask you, where 
it's something I've been puzzling over where trucker culture shifted in terms of public view, because there was this time in the seventies and even into the early eighties where truckers did have kind of a mystique. And now I don't think if you ask your average person, describe a trucker to me, the words handsome outlaw would be at the top of the list. It's more like, well, aren't they the ones who do meth and have sex in parking lots? Well, the answer to that or is yes. Is that me? No, no, no. The answer <laughs> yeah, yeah. is yes. So, so when did that end? Yeah, when was the shift? Like, was there a moment? Was there a movie? Was there an incident? Or did was there just a, a gradual come to reality I, of like, maybe that's not so great? I think it was a gradual come to reality. But I think really the, the, the capstone on that was probably Smokey and the Bandit 3. You're probably right. I mean, We're just as a, a source of entertainment. America said, no, thank you. Finally. That's what I was like, you know what? We've had enough of this. You know, we sort we sort of peeked under the covers. We romanticized this for a while, but then we've come to realize this is just kind of gross. And then monster, then monster came out and sort of proved it outright. You're just like, Ugh, this or is- the hitcher. Yes. <laughs> <to> your point. <laughs> like, like this can go South real quick. <laughs> Here's the the dark side of everything you've seen. Uh, yeah, I it, it's an uncomfortable watch at this point. I think there are times that I see a movie I want to see in this film. It's it, at the end of the day, though. I just feel like it's it's a little too lazy. It, it's lazy with the stereotypes. The plot is meandering at best. All the stuff that you should care about, you don't because they don't pay any attention to it. There's really three or four good scenes in this movie. And then the rest of it is cool stunts and just fi- racism and sex. Yeah, and, and ad lib filler dialogue. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's all it, like all this stuff with big enus and little enus at the beginning when he's just kind of riffing a little bit, which. Burt Reynolds is not great at. No. It's just a lot of him repeating what someone says. And except with the laugh, you know, like, we're going to give you $5,000. $5,000, you say. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and that's the whole, it, it's just that over and over again through a lot of those scenes. And, and some of the scenes <laughs> with Sally Field as well are the same way. So that is uh, Smokey and the Bandit for this episode. Uh, we have a lot more Burt Reynolds coming up in uh, future episodes. So... Uh, We hope you will join us as we continue to uh, explore the career of uh, uh, the wigged one, Burt Reynolds, as he made his way through numerous reinventions of himself that surprisingly look the exact same, no matter what role he's playing. Yeah. Have we decided what the next one is? Do we tell? I think our next one, we're going to take another uh, trip behind the wheel and uh, ride along in Stroker Ace, where Burt Reynolds teams up with Jim Neighbors and his future ex-wife, Lonnie Anderson, for the uh, stock car adventure uh, of a lifetime. Uh, Slight spoiler, more sexist. It's it's so much worse. They they just they tip their toe in the water on this film and in in Stroker Ace it's a full on cannonball. It's remarkable. I'll leave it there. We'll talk about it the next episode, but yeah, I I can't wait to discuss Stroker Ace cuz it is everything I don't like about Smokey and the Bandit only worse. I I I agree with that. So, uh we will uh 
we will do it again uh, in the next episode. Yep. All right. One week. One week. And we'll see you next time on Pick 6 Movies. Yeah.